It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from across Ukraine, discuss the state of Ukrainian sport, and Don Nichols interviews Lord Ricketts on a new report that examines the long-term impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine for UK-EU relations. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 2nd of February. One year and 342 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley, and our guest is British-Ukrainian sports journalist Andrew Todas. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, thanks, David. Hi, everybody. Hi, Andrew. Welcome, welcome. Russian drone strikes last night across Ukraine, more than the night before, although that was an aberration of only four. Only 24 last night, so not to the usual number, but still had an effect. One drone strike cut off electricity in President Zelensky's hometown of Krivary in the early hours of this morning. This is from the national grid operator Ukrainago. The power outages briefly trapped 113 miners underground, but they got out a few hours later. That came from the city's mayor, Alexander Vikul. Ukraine's air defence said they shot down 11 of 24 of the drones that all aimed at critical national infrastructure across the southeast of the country. Mr Vikul said there had been a blow to the critical infrastructure of our city and around 100,000 people had been left without electricity including some of the city's hospitals, kindergartens and schools. He said the situation was under control by 7am and everywhere, including all hospitals, had electricity again. Now then, next one, General Veloj Zaluzny, the Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces, has, has been commenting. Controversial timing, you might think. I wonder if he's, given the mood music of this week, whether he's going down fighting, perhaps. He said the country can't match Russia's manpower in terms of quantity, without taking unpopular measures, as he describes it. It's being interpreted as a veiled swipe at President Zelensky. General Zelensky said Ukraine should seize the moment, alluding to the supposed reluctance on behalf of the president to back the call, Zelensky's call for a military draft of up to 500,000 people. He's gone public 
with his views in an op-ed for the US network CNN, published yesterday. He wrote, We must acknowledge the significant advantage enjoyed by the enemy in mobilising human resources and how that compares with the inability of state institutions in Ukraine to improve the manpower levels of our armed forces without the use of unpopular measures. Now, he's long argued that as many as up to half a million people might need to be called up to counter the numerical advantage that Russia has. He suggested Ukraine must also change the way it fights if it's to gain the advantage. He said the challenge for our armed forces cannot be underestimated. It is to create a completely new state system of technological rearmament. He highlighted drones in particular, saying they were crucial, provided the best way for Ukraine to avoid being drawn into a positional war where we do not possess the advantage. Now, this article was written ahead of any anticipated, expected, possible announcement of his dismissal. And CNN had earlier reported that President Zelensky was set to announce that sacking by the end of this week. There have been a lot of criticism of the media and of us for talking about the possible sacking of um, Zeluzny. But I do think it's a legitimate piece of news, or at least commentary. And I think an honest discussion about leadership, management, national structures and whatnot is is not as much of the Kremlin and their trolls would like to portray it an admission of failure or a sign of weakness. But I think it's I think it's a healthy and live debate. But you know, if anybody wants to display their one dimensional grasp of international security, go ahead, post me an abusive comment on Twitter. Just remember I mute, I don't block, so you'll never know that I'm not listening. And anyway, I just like the thought of you furiously master tweeting into an empty room now next one france has confirmed that two french aid workers were killed in a russian strike the part of those of the strikes last night ukrainian officials said this was near the city of Hezon, although i can't find a date exactly when that happened or a time because i think it was last night I'm not exactly sure uh, stefan sejourn france foreign minister said on twitter russian barbarity has targeted civilians in ukraine Two French humanitarian workers paid for their commitment to the Ukrainians with their lives. Russia will have to answer for its crimes. President Emmanuel Macron called the killings a cowardly and disgraceful act. Similarly, although not linked, two workers with a Swiss church aid have been killed in southeastern Ukraine. Other staff members wounded. Now, an update on the shootdown last week of the IL-76, the military transport plane. A Ukrainian intelligence official said that Kyiv has repeatedly asked Russia to hand over the bodies of the alleged prisoners of war who Moscow claimed were killed in the downing of the IL-76 by Ukrainian forces about 10 days ago. Andrei Yusov, spokesperson for Ukraine's military intelligence, said that Kyiv had urged Moscow to hand over the bodies of those who died in the crash on January 24th. But so far, the, Moscow has refused to do so. Mr. Yusuf reaffirmed Ukraine's call for an international probe into the crash that would determine whether the cargo plane carried weapons, as has been suggested, or passengers along with a crew. Now, Russia and Ukraine, obviously, over the last 10 days have been trading accusations. Moscow accusing Kyiv of killing its own men. Ukraine dismissing Moscow's assertions as rampant Russian propaganda. Kyiv neither confirmed nor denied that it downed the IL-76, uh, and Russia's claim that the crash killed 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war couldn't be independently verified. Ukrainian officials did say a prisoner swap was planned for that day, but they also say Moscow did not ask for any specific stretch 
of airspace to be kept safe for any period of time, as it has for previous prisoner exchanges. Russian state news agency RIA Novosti, they carried a story today, quoting a few regime officials. Dmitry Peskov, Kremlin spokesman, he said Moscow hadn't received a Ukrainian request to hand over the bodies. Putin said Russia wouldn't just welcome, but would insist on an international inquiry into the plane's downing that he described as a crime by Ukraine. And Sergei Shoigu, Russia's defence minister, said the crash was a result of Ukraine's cynical actions. Make of that what you will. Moscow say that Kiev shot the plane down using US-made Patriot or German Iris T surface-to-air missiles. Kiev has not commented on that aspect of it, but challenged details of Moscow's account and also has called for an international investigation. I asked a Western official yesterday about the incident. I was told the missile was fired from Ukrainian territory, but the official I spoke to gave no comment on the type of missile, you know, Patriot or RST. The official also said it was not clear if any prisoners of war were on board. So we will keep our eyes on that. Elsewhere in the brief with the Western officials, just a few sort of bullet points from that. The officials said there's little prospect of a breakthrough by either side at the moment on the land campaign. There's no strategic significance to the recent Russian tactical gains. Russia's main effort still seems to be, for the moment, Avdivka, where Russia has lost significant numbers of personnel and vehicles, mostly by drones. Russia is seeking to bypass the main fortifications in the city by using a number of the service tunnels there. It is said to be very attritional, with no strategic gain, even if Avdika is taken by Russia. The officials also said Ukrainian marines are still on the left bank of the Dnipro, despite multiple Russian attacks. Russian attacks are not lacking for ammunition, but they are exceedingly poor in training and coordination. Most likely scenario for the rest of 24 is continued attritional warfare with no decisive breakthroughs. On the Black Sea, the official said the uh, Ivanovitz guided missile corvette yesterday was destroyed. And also that Ukraine is now exporting enough or exporting through the Black Sea or sorry, Ukraine's exports through the Black Sea are at pre-February 2022 levels. The economy, Ukraine's economy, expected to grow by four or five percent this year. And whilst the official said that the the pledge of money yesterday by the EU was welcomed, just made the point that Russia's economy at about $2 trillion a year pales against the external supporters, mainly the West, the economy at $50 trillion. And so the official didn't make the point, but I would just reiterate, you remember former British General Sir Richard Barron speaking at the Lucerne Dialogue just before Christmas said, this is not about affordability, this is a choice, it's not about the money. The money is there. It's the political will that seems to be lacking at the moment. Just one last one for me, David. There's an interesting story in today's Financial Times about Euroclear, a Belgium-based financial services company that specialises in the settlement of securities transactions. Euroclear earned 4.4 billion euros last year from Russian assets it holds that have been immobilised by EU sanctions. So Euroclear is holding about 190 billion euro worth or euros belonging to Russia's central bank that Moscow can't get hold of due to sanctions. And that money is accruing interest. So EU nations voted unanimously on Monday approving rules for that interest, that money, that interest money to be used to support Ukraine. Now, unfortunately, the legislation, that legislation will only apply once the new rules come into force, so in a few weeks' time, not retrospectively, but 
the European Commission is preparing further legislation to seize retrospective profits that companies like Euroclear have set aside. It's not their money. They're very clear on that. They've put it separately. They know it will go somewhere eventually, but that money is there, and this amounts to billions. Now, this area is fraught with technical and legal difficulties. I raise it because I think it's an interesting point, but also I interviewed Lord Ricketts, chair of the House of Lords European Affairs Committee, a couple of days ago. That interview is coming out today, I believe. And we talked about this, and the seizure of Russian assets is very difficult because it's difficult to show ownership and if an asset is part owned by someone who is sanctioned part owned by someone who isn't you know it's very difficult to then sell that on and try and use the money for ukraine but if you've got a cash sum or if there's interest that's being gained in cash terms because of frozen sanctioned assets that is a much much easier thing to get your hands on still legal and technical challenges but that is an area and lord ricketts said that is something that that has been actively pursued and could be a way through this what do you do with frozen russian assets argument and could realize a lot of money in fairly short order so listen to the interview have a look at that article in today's ft and keep alive to this uh, this idea that frozen russian assets could be useful even if you don't seize the properties the yachts the x y and z and i'll take a break there david Thank you very much for all of that, Tom. Francis Sternley, what has taken your eye today? Well, thanks, David. I said yesterday we were unsure of what may or may not have been conceded by Hungary or the EU in order to see that 50 billion euro aid package for Ukraine agreed by the 27 member states of the bloc. But we are beginning to hear the predictable spinning from both parties. So Viktor Orban is saying he went to the wall, his phrase, for his country before agreeing to the deal on Thursday, claiming that he averted the risk of losing EU funds earmarked for Budapest from the bloc's joint coffers. In an interview on State Radio yesterday, where he addresses, of course, his domestic audience, important to emphasise that, Mr Orban said the agreement reached on Thursday was a good one. If this deal had not been reached and Hungary had continued to use its right of veto, then 26 member states would have agreed to send the money to Ukraine and would have taken away the funds earmarked for Hungary and sent that to Ukraine as well. Why would that have been good? We are not sending weapons to Ukraine. We get our money from Brussels and we will contribute to the civil financing of Ukraine. Now, as Joe Barnes is always keen to emphasise, Viktor Orban talks tough, but often folds in private. So we we should take what he says here with the usual caveats and remember his audience. This may not be what really took place. And I think we will learn more about the nature of the conversations that took place earlier this week in due course. The next debate, of course, relating to Hungary is on Sweden's accession bid to NATO. Pressure is mounting for Orban to ratify Sweden's bid as soon as possible now. As we reported, he says his government backs Sweden joining the alliance, but he faces pressure from abroad to accelerate the process. So senior US lawmakers have said they want Hungary to immediately approve Sweden's accession. Opposition lawmakers in Hungary have called on an extraordinary session of parliament for Monday to try to put that bid on the agenda to go through parliament as soon as possible. But lawmakers in the governing party, Mr Orban's party, told Reuters they would wait until a meeting between Mr Orban and the Swedish prime minister, the precise timing of which is uncertain. I think it's fair to assume that Orban will want to try and get something from Sweden in exchange for a timely approval process. So lingering short-term frustrations remain, but if one steps back, 
we enter February 2024 with a significant package of support approved for Ukraine and Sweden set to join NATO very soon. Both are vitally important for the long-term trajectory of both the war and European defence. So it's important, I think, we mark this moment. Hungary is well known, of course, to be a challenging partner in the security context, to put it mildly. Another, of course, is Turkey. On the plus side, they have just dropped their resistance to Sweden's NATO membership, though Turkey continues to fill their traditional role as a broker between East and West. And we learned today that Putin will discuss the conflict in Ukraine with President Erdogan during his upcoming visit to Turkey. That's coming from RIA news agency citing Dmitry Peskov. He's declined to say when exactly Putin would make that visit, but the Turks have stood him up and said it will take place on February 12th. It's rather embarrassing for Peskov. Uh, The RIA have also quoted him as saying... Turkey was coming under unprecedented pressure from the Anglo-Saxons, by which they mean the United States and Britain, over its ties with Russia. But the Ankara was preserving its independence. I must say, I do love it when Russian propaganda refers to us as Anglo-Saxons. I think it's meant to be insulting, but to me it conjures an august lineage of noble kings rather than barbarians. Fun fact, 25% of words we use in modern English comes from the Anglo-Saxon language. Did you know that, Dom? I do now. Maybe, maybe it's 100% of your, your everyday use. But uh, anyway, I would point Peskov to visit the British Museum and see the Sutton Hoo exhibit, which includes some of the most impressive metal and jewellery work anywhere in the world, and including the Russian Hermitage. But anyway, I digress. Turning to Russia specifically, we discussed at length last week with James Kilner the fact that the anti-war candidate Boris Nadizhdin was to run against Putin in the election. Well, surprise, surprise, Russia's election commission has just found what they call irregularities in the list of signatories he submitted to back his bid to run against Putin. That's coming from Taz, the news agency, and has been reported as well by Reuters. Now, to stress, nobody expects him to win if he's allowed to run. But he is one of those candidates that would cause Putin potentially some embarrassment, highlighting that there is dissatisfaction within Russia over the war. And as such, it is highly unlikely, many believe, that he will not be allowed to run, or, if he is that the operation will be seriously hampered. Ms. Nadezhdin needs the Central Election Commission to approve signatories he submitted on Wednesday from more than 100,000 supporters across Russia to get his name on the ballot for the March 15th, 17th election. The Electoral Commission met today and its deputy chairman said that those voter lists submitted by the candidates contained the names of dead people. But again, we've not been able to independently verify that. And there's been so much speculation that Moscow and the Kremlin will try to do everything possible to stop his name being on the ballot. He's not commented yet, but this is a fast moving story. So there may well be updates over the course of the day. So if you're interested in this, I recommend listeners keep an eye on our Ukraine live blog over the afternoon and of course the weekend.
Well, thank you very much, Francis. Often, sometimes with your slight digressions, one of my eyebrows shoots up, but I too very much enjoy the idea that Russia's imperial designs are being thwarted by people called Ethelwolf and Ethelbert. But let's move on. Andrew Turdus, thank you so much for joining us. Andrew, as a British-Ukrainian sports journalist, we first spoke to you a couple of months ago when we looked at the state of Ukrainian football and we discussed uh, how teams were surviving during the full-scale invasion. We can talk a little bit about that later, I think, because there have been some developments. I know you want to talk about that. But let's start with the new president of the Ukrainian Association of Football. That's the sports governing body in Ukraine. Um, Andriy Shevchenko, a former AC Milan, former Chelsea striker. It's a big moment. Uh, Tell us a little bit about him and what his election means for Ukrainian football. Hi there. Thanks for having me on. Yes, so last week I was in Kiev for Andriy Shevchenko's election, inauguration as the new Ukrainian Association of Football president. He has run unopposed, won 93 of 94 votes, and the one that abstained was himself. So altogether, he is been elected as a result of the fact that his incumbent, Andriy Pavelko, is currently in a pre-trial detention centre on alleged corruption and embezzlement charges. And as a result, that investigation started around November 2022, before Pavelko was actually sent to the pre-trial detention centre without bail back in June of last year. So since then, there have been obviously people in UAF working behind the scenes, but there has not been an official president per se. And it came to the 26th annual Congress that happened last week for changes to be made. Andriy Shevchenko, of course, very close to uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukraine president. He's an ambassador for United 24, the big charity that the Ukrainian government runs. And similarly, Shevchenko's a very big ambassador in the footballing world and the sporting world. Well, let's move on a little bit then. There's an upcoming UEFA Congress this week. Can you explain what's happening and maybe delve into some of the politics and issues that Shevchenko will have to negotiate? I mean, you mentioned there the return of Russians to international sports. And every day, Francis gives us his take on international diplomacy and politics. But that bleeds into what Shevchenko will have to deal with, no? Absolutely. So, I mean, one of the first things that Andriy Shevchenko mentioned when he was elected was to some of the British media was saying that he'd like Alexander Sheferin, the UEFA president, to come to Ukraine and see it for himself, especially after last year there was talk of allowing under-17 Russian national teams to return to qualifying competitions because at the moment they are banned and following the full-scale invasion back in February 2022, following pressure from a number of different UEFA states who said they wouldn't play Russian sides, that's when they were officially banned per se. So this is something that I think it will be top of the agenda from Andrew Shevchenko's point of view. It will be his first UEFA Congress. Officially, we haven't seen a message of congratulations from Alexander Cheferin yet, a public one anyway, that sort of says congrats on the new role because Andrew Pavelko, Shevchenko's predecessor, is actually still an executive committee member of uh, UEFA. So we'll see whether that ends up changing, obviously due to the current judicial process that's going on there. And on top of that, we'll see whether actually Andriy Shevchenko can maybe rally against what's going on there. Because last week, during his 
speech that Shevchenko made pre-election, he mentioned his good friend Zvonimir Boban, who is a Croatian. He worked in the Croatian FA and was a player before that, but he worked in the Croatian FA during the 90s and early 2000s that helped to reset Croatia after, obviously, the Yugoslav Wars and put them on track for the kind of successful period that their country has has seen on the international footballing stage. So, ironically, Zvonimir Boban actually resigned last week from a UEFA senior position. I think he was a director of football of some kind there as a result of the fact that Alexander Cheferin wants to bring in a new law or new statute change where the UEFA president no longer can serve more than two terms, which will also be discussed next week. So we're going to be seeing quite a difficult situation, I guess, for Andrew Zhushchenko. If he wants to get in with the top dogs at UEFA, how he's going to address that particular policy change that obviously the top heads at UEFA want to push for. And then as well as that, challenge UEFA, who have been, I would say, relatively sitting on the fence with regards to the Ukraine question, because just last week, I think uh, Cheferin did an uh, a interview with The Guardian and they in there, he said that there's currently no pressure on him to return Russia to any particular sporting perspective. And as a result of that, he also said that Serbia, obviously a European nation, a EU hopeful have agreed to play Russia, the first European national team, to play Russia in a friendly that's going to be coming up this March. So commenting on that, Chefren actually said, it's not under our jurisdiction. Serbia can play against you, me and others in this room. Legally, there is nothing we can do. And no one cares about that match. So he's detracting the importance of actually the symbolic nature that Russia will have in saying, hey, we're playing against European nation again might be this, the sort of the backdoor approach for us to come back to European competitions. And if that's the kind of position of obviously the UEFA president, and I understand he has to be diplomatic in his respect as the president of all of the 55 UEFA nations, it's still an issue that it seems that Russia has got a precedent over uh, UAF, for example, especially when there was another interview, I think a couple of weeks ago, where Chefrin says that Israel and Ukraine, who are currently playing in a, who will be potentially playing in a Euro playoff in at the end of March. First, Ukraine have to get for a semi-final against Bosnia, and then they potentially could face Israel in a playoff final to make it to the European Championships in Germany this summer. And Alexander Chefrin mentioned that both of those, either of those sides qualifying could actually end up being a security issue or a serious one. And that's in Ukraine anyway, it's put the game into disrepute that the UEFA president has been saying this ahead of that game and potentially refereeing decisions and other things might be put into a bigger spotlight given such phrases. So this is certainly something that Andrew Shevchenko is going to have to deal with next week when he goes to Paris and what kind of relationships he can build with, I guess, UEFA partners. Because another thing that he mentioned during his election speech, and one of the points that he wants to bring to his new uh, tenureship, is to bring in new sponsorships and 
help Ukraine rebuild in terms of its footballing nature. So it's going to be very interesting how that international cooperation begins, especially against the spotlight of the kind of politicisation of everything that's going on. That's a fascinating account, Andrew, of how international politics bleeds into sport and how nations do try and manipulate it and change it. Thank you for talking us through that. Let's move away from Shevchenko, then look back at Ukraine. Last time, as I said, we spoke a little bit about the resilience of Ukrainian clubs. You mentioned one had definitely closed and many were facing difficulties, of course, in the face of the full-scale invasion. Do you have any updates for us there? What's the current state of affairs? So currently, the professional Ukrainian football landscapes on a winter break, its annual one, started at the beginning of December and will end towards the end of February when the second half of the season resumes for the Ukrainian Premier League and the two leagues below that. At the moment, most of the top flight clubs are there in either Turkey or Spain on their winter training camps, playing friendlies, preparing for things. And I mean, in the context of how clubs are dealing with it, I guess we can give the example of Shakhtar Donetsk, obviously Ukraine's probably most well-known club at this moment in time and most successful one at this moment in time they have signed two players during this winter transfer window one for 15 million and another for 16 million euros so that just shows that despite the circumstances that are arising in Ukrainian football where obviously there is instability Ukrainian clubs such as Shakhtar are still signing players or able to obviously that is aided with the fact that they sold Mihailo Mudrik to Chelsea last winter for a deal that could be worth up to 100 million euros given certain bonuses and everything that happens there and on top of that other clubs in Ukraine that are funded by wealthy businessmen and businesses they're also making signings maybe not as extravagant as the ones that Shakhtar are making but it seems to me that there is a slow growth happening especially in the top flight of Ukrainian football when it comes to club management there has been talk of potentially some other clubs in the lower leagues that could be under financial issues and the likes but that's currently more unofficial We'll see how that progresses towards the end of the season and if there are any problems that that arise from that. But I guess the main thing is that there are a few new wave sides that are coming in, some that have got owners that are related to agriculture. One of them is quite a wealthy billionaire who owns one of the big Ukrainian supermarket chains. And as a result, he's quite putting in quite a lot of funds into his club. It's one of the clubs that heavyweight boxer Alexander Usyk actually signed for at the start of this season as a kind of token player. But there is expectation that potentially after his fight in a few weeks against Tyson Fury, he may potentially line up for the club in the Ukrainian Premier League in a game. So that will be quite interesting to follow going forward. Well, I know Dom and Francis have got two questions or several questions to come. So one more from me. Before we went on air, Andrew, as you mentioned there in the winter break, Ukrainian teams training in Turkey and playing friendlies. But also there are Russian teams doing the same thing. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So there's a bit of a sporting political scandal coming about that this winter break, of course, Russian clubs have also been across Turkey. They've been in Dubai, Qatar, and as have European sides, including clubs from EU countries. So this first came up or as a big, quite a big headline story last week or the week before when Slovan Bratislava from Slovakia inadvertently posted that they would be playing a friendly against Dinamo Moscow. And as a result, 
and far by mine and Ukrainian media's point of view, this is the first match between an EU club against a Russian side. Okay, it's a friendly, it doesn't really mean much, it was behind closed doors, but still, the symbolism of it is very important because there were already articles coming out in the Russian media saying, or is this the beginning of the start of our clubs coming back into the foray of UEFA um, and maybe we might be able to get more out of this as a result of it. Big scandal happened. Slavia Praha, the Czech club, they were meant to be playing Slovan Bratislava a few weeks after this game. As a result of seeing that that Slovan were playing against Dinamo Moscow, they cancelled their game against uh, Slovan and said that we will not be playing clubs that are playing against Russian sides. And they've been quite supportive of Ukraine and Ukrainian refugees and the like since the war began. And as a result of that, a domino effect has happened. Uh, Ukrainian clubs were meant to be playing against sides that had played or were planning to play Russian clubs and they have since cancelled those games as well. And it's something that I think we'll probably have to be looking into going forward with how these clubs start, how these Russian clubs anyway, start to attempt to try and work their way in. Because over the past two years, and especially over the past year in particular, there have been a lot more transfers between European sides and Russian sides. Literally in the past few days, I think a Chilean forward from FC20 in the Eredivisie in the Netherlands moved to Spartak Moscow for 13 million euros. And I think there's a big investigation piece in how funds, despite sanctions, have been able to move between both clubs or Russian clubs and EU clubs and the likes over the past year. And it's some shady business, to say the least. And it's, I guess it's slightly worrying in that respect. And it might be something that Andrew Shuchenko in his new tenorship, going back to that in the UAF presidency, can maybe start bringing a bit more focus to because Ukraine or the Ukrainian Association of Football has been quite, maybe not as effective as it ha- could have been over the past two years. So we'll see how that goes forward. Andrew, thanks so much for your time today. I just wanted to stay on this theme that you're talking about at the moment, which is the direction of travel regarding Russia being allowed to partake in international sport. Do you think the ground is shifting at all? Do you think that there is a chance that within a year or two years that perhaps countries will begin and institutions will begin to say, well, actually, we've made our point and Russia is allowed back in the fold, as it were? Or do you think there is still a very firm resolve amongst the people that you speak to who say, look, as long as the war is going on and the horrors are being perpetrated by the Russian state... This we cannot have them too actively involved in international sport. Just interested in your perspective on that. Absolutely. So I think it's a double-edged sword at the moment. So we have to wait and see how exactly Andrew Shushenko approaches this in UEFA uh, next week and going forward, I guess, over the next six months, year, year and a half, as you mentioned. I think there will be a lot of opposition to returning Russian clubs or Russian national teams, 100%. That being from... Ukrainian allies, England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, hopefully, Ireland, as well as Poland, a lot of the Scandinavian sides, the Baltic countries, 100% will be against that. For example, literally just yesterday, I'm pretty sure, Latvia actually officially banned its national teams from playing any Russian or Belarus teams. So that going forward, hopefully we might see it. Of course, I think there will be some lobbying from maybe 
Russian allies per se, as we've seen Serbia playing them in a friendly in March. That's already a bit of a red flag. And maybe we might see other European sides who class Russia as an ally or at least close to playing friendlies or the like in the near future. And yes, it depends on how long this continues in terms of how long that opposition can hold and whether it might get overruled by UEFA, whether it will start bringing it back. Because like I said, there's a lot of transfers happening. Russians, a few have moved to EU leagues and EU clubs over the past year, year and a half, despite the context of things. So I think it's never going to be, sadly, a fully closed door. But I'm hoping that it will remain maybe this status quo that we're currently in for the foreseeable. Thanks, Andrew. A couple for me, if I may. I'm just looking to the future, sort of moving, taking Francis's idea there. What are you hearing around the bazaars? And apologies, this is a bit off the grid, but what are you hearing more broadly about things like the Olympics and Russian representation there and Belarusian representation there and kind of sports washing in general? What's the kind of mood music amongst the fraternity? And just finally, you mentioned the Alexander Usyk and Tyson Fury fight coming up. How significant is that going to be for Ukrainian sport, Ukrainian boxing, and who's going to win? Sure. So let's start with the Olympics. I think that's going to be a big issue coming up in the next few months. So we've seen a lot of international sporting federations allow Russians to return and Belarusians to return to competing in competitions and even qualifying tournaments for the Olympics. The overwhelming majority, as far as I'm aware, are all based on these Russians have to be neutral or come as neutrals under the white flag and, and not fight. However, there are plenty of Ukrainian organizations and media outlets that have been making big lists and lobbying the fact that a lot of these Russian athletes have actually shown public support for Putin or the war or been involved in something related to it that is overwhelmingly negative regarding everything that's going on in Ukraine right now. And they're still being allowed to compete or avoiding the subject of allowing it. And this is something that Thomas Bach, the uh, IOC chief for the International Olympic Committee, has been quite open towards in terms of letting Russians in there because he's got a history in fencing. There's a lot of Russian influence in fencing and he's got quite a lot of allies going on there, obviously, since Sochi and everything that happened back in 2014 and going forward. However, you see the likes of tennis where it's actually quite prevalent how high well high level athletes end up winning tournaments or getting quite far in them for example Arina Sabalenka the Belarusian tennis player just won the Australian Open she was a neutral of course however widely celebrated in Belarus and even after I think the final of the men's Australian Open final we saw Medvedev the losing finalist talking about his Russian teammates and the fact that Yannick Sinner, the winner of the Australian Open, beat all of his Russian teammates in the tournament. And they were essentially saying, oh, wow, yeah, he beat the whole Ryder Cup team, all the likes, to a Russian journalist in Russian in that press conference. So it's like neutrality, that white flag is essentially meaningless in the grand scheme of things it doesn't actually it's no meaningful punishment for anything and just i think over the past few days we've seen a figure skater from the 20 
2021 or 2022 Olympic Games have her medal rescinded and banned for doping because obviously that is still quite rife in Russian sports. And it just shows that I guess the international sporting communities are relatively weak in their responses. Fortunately, I think football is probably ironically one of the strongest in terms of their responses at the moment. But it seems that the Olympics could be maybe not a watershed moment, but certainly one where we see these athletes return and it's going to be maybe not business as usual as much, but sadly there's going to be a lot of problems that resolve around from that and the Russians will be clawing back as much influence as, or I guess recognition and visibility as they can, which is unfortunate. And just talking about the Alexander Usyk fight, yes, that's well underway in terms of preparation. He's into his sort of final training camps because the fight's on the 17th of February in Saudi Arabia. I think last week, Tyson Fury, the mind game's really begun. He was taking the mick out of Alexander Usyk uh, wearing an earring. And he was wearing that earring because uh, uh, Cossack warriors wear it. And Tyson Fury said something like, oh, I'm never going to lose to someone with an earring in. But I think it's uh, this kind, these kind of mind games. It's one of those ones that don't really get into the heads of Ukrainian boxers such as Vladimir Klitschko back in the day and similar with Alexander Usyk, whose English isn't actually that great. So maybe he won't fully understand all of the hate that, that Tyson Fury will be starting on. But also there's going to be huge support for Usyk, not just obviously in Ukraine, where I think a lot of people are hoping that he can pull off a historic win, obviously get the first loss on Tyson Fury's record, unify the heavyweight division. And at this moment in time, especially with everything that's going on with the war against Russia, it's vital for visibility for Ukrainian sport to be given this sort of big public platform, if anything, because a lot of people have forgotten that the war's going on or maybe don't know the latest. And through sport, you can actually access a much bigger audience. And that's similar to the Euros this summer. It's actually hugely vital for Ukraine to qualify for them because it's going to give a billion people audience a fact of before every game, during every game, in the build-up to remind people that there's a war going on, everything that's happening, and to ensure that that remains in the public consciousness to maybe those people that don't follow public affairs so closely and everything that's surrounding it. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for your time. We'll come back to you for your final thoughts after Francis and Dom. Dom or Francis, who would like to start? Well, thanks, Dave. That was really, really interesting. And thanks, Andrew, for your time today. I'll never bet against Tyson, but nonetheless, I think it's going to be a great fight when it does happen. It's been a while since we've been able to discuss the ongoing legal processes around Russian war crimes, David. And there has been a development today. The International Court of Justice is ruling on whether it has jurisdiction to hear a case filed by Ukraine in the days after Russia's invasion, accusing Moscow of breaching the Genocide Convention. Kyiv claims that Russia breached the landmark 1948 convention by using trumped-up claims of genocide in the eastern regions of Luhansk and Donetsk as a pretext for attacking Ukraine nearly two years ago. Ukraine also accuses Moscow of planning acts of genocide, a subject we've discussed many times, and indeed the debates around the use of that term. Moscow has naturally rejected the allegations and argued last year that the court should throw out the case before even considering the merits of Kiev's claims. At hearings in September, the leader of Moscow's legal team called Ukraine's case hopelessly flawed and at odds with the long-standing jurisprudence of this court. 
In response, the legal representative of Ukraine said Russia's defiance is also an attack on this court's authority. Every missile that Russia fires at our cities, it fires in defiance of this court. Now, for the court to have jurisdiction, Ukraine has to establish that it has a dispute with Russia over the Genocide Convention. As I say, we will hear that today, and so we will probably be having a good chance to talk about a little bit more detail next week. We will keep an eye on this. And I know it sounds very legalese, trying to define definitions, and some people get very frustrated about this because they want to get into the detail of what has actually happened and the egregious acts that have been committed. But this really matters because it lays the moral framework in which a lot of the future legal conversations will be had. So an important case, David, and one that I'm no doubt we'll be returning to. Thank you very much, Francis. Dom Nichols. Yeah, thanks, David. I would point folk to an interesting article in today's Kiev Independent. You'll see it on their website. The article is titled, Is it OK to have fun during war? We asked Ukrainians. It's a topic that we've talked about occasionally over the last couple of years, about, about quite where we sit and are we able to follow the the war very closely and also then have our own space, have fun, etc, etc. Where's the moral line on that? Some lines from the article. Marina, a woman who works at the Kharkiv Literary Museum, she said it's okay to experience joy in tough times, especially when you realise that each moment could be your last. And a lot of the people interviewed said that they not only doing nice things, going to gigs and what have you, going to coffee shops and restaurants, not only does it offer some relief, as they say, from the constant blare of air raid sirens, but it also sends a sign to Russia that Ukraine will never surrender. Now, the article does say that some soldiers on the front line objected to things like a lot of photos on social media showing people elsewhere in the country partying, going on about their holidays and so on and so forth. But I think it's something that we should have a constant debate about. I welcome people's thoughts here, but we do get a lot of emails about people feeling frustrated and angry with the war. And do they then have the right to be able to go and enjoy themselves in wherever they are around the world? I think if done with sensitivity, it is fine. And I also think it's necessary to find time to have fun, to rest the mind and the soul and to refuse to be cowed and changed by Putin and his ilk. I think that goes for all of us, regardless how geographically or personally close to the war we are. And for my two penneth this weekend, I'm going to be busting some shapes at the Margaret Glassby gig here in London, part of Independent Venue Week. I know Francis will be putting his earring back in and working out against the the post Still of Tyson Fury. Still haven't been to Abba Voyage yet. Sorry, Mum. But uh, yeah, I think it's absolutely fine. And uh, so please do do let us know what you're doing to rest your mind and soul in these uh, in these dark times. Well, thank you very much, Dom and Francis. Francis, I look forward to you debuting your World Wrestling Federation character at some point in the next few months. Andrew, as our guest, would you like the very final words? Yes, uh, thanks very much for having me on. It's been very interesting and listening, obviously, to the updates and everything that's going on. An avid listener when I'm not on as well. So very pleased to be back on here. Just one thing, obviously, carrying on from what Dom just said in that article about the Kiev independent is it okay to have fun during war there is talk of in the next couple of months once the Ukrainian Premier League resumes that football might open its doors again or stadia anyway to fans to be allowed back in because for the past two years they haven't been allowed obviously due to the fact that there are the dangers of what happens during an air raid where do people go and I think there has been talk with the Ministry of Sport with Ukrainian Association of Football about allowing at least a small percentage of people to come back into 
see football games and offer that respite that we've just been talking about to forget about the war maybe for 90 minutes or so. And fingers crossed that that does come in and that is obviously safely enacted and hopefully everything carries on going positively from a sporting perspective. Ukraine can make it to the Euros and there will be that representation globally to allow people to understand maybe a bit more about what's going on in Ukraine with this war that's going on that may not follow everything that's happening so closely. Thank you, Dom, Francis and Andrew. Earlier this week, Dom spoke to Lord Ricketts from the UK's House of Lords about the publication of a new report that looks at the long-term impact of the invasion of Ukraine for EU-UK relations. Here's their conversation. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Lord Ricketts is chair of the European Affairs Committee of the House of Lords, the committee appointed to consider matters relating to the UK's relationship with the European Union. And in a diplomatic career spanning 40 years, Lord Ricketts has been the British permanent representative to NATO, has served as chair of the Joint Intelligence Committee under Prime Minister Tony Blair, and was the UK's first national security advisor from 2010 to 2012 under Prime Minister David Cameron. Sir Peter's last post was as ambassador to France, where he was heavily involved with UK-French defence cooperation following the 2010 Lancaster House treaties. Lord Ricketts, welcome to The Telegraph and to Ukraine, the latest. Thank you for having me. We are talking today about your committee's report titled The Ukraine Effect, the Impact of Russia's Invasion on Ukraine and the UK-EU Relationship. It's released this morning and says it seeks to look beyond the immediate crisis management of the war towards the handling of longer-term issues, focusing in particular on sanctions, the UK-EU defence relationship, the reconstruction of Ukraine, and long-term implications for the UK-EU foreign and security relationship. The report says Russia's invasion of Ukraine has provided a context for more pragmatic and practical cooperation between the UK and the EU, prompting them to put aside disagreements to address a common threat. Do you think the starting point of the UK-EU relationship in this regard is where it would have been had Brexit not happened? I don't think we're quite back to that point, no. But wars tend to clarify things and simplify choices. And you'll recall that the UK government when they negotiated the trade and cooperation agreement with the EU, decided not to have a part on foreign and security policy cooperation. So there was no agreed structure for talking to the EU about those issues. Then came the war in Europe. And two years on from that, we thought it was a good time to take a look at what the impact of that had been on our cooperation with the EU. And not surprisingly, we found that it had totally changed the context when you're faced with major war on your continent, you have to go back and look at the assumptions that existed before. And we found that in the course of these two years, some very effective 
ad hoc cooperation had developed between the UK and the EU. Not, I'd say, at a level it would have been if we'd been still a member of the EU, but I think all of us on the committee accept that we're now outside, we have to make the best job we can of that, and that this has been a very interesting example of the UK and EU under the pressure of war, working out some quite effective practical ways of working together, for example, on sanctions. Talking about sanctions, I note the Foreign Secretary, when interviewed for your report, he said that without sanctions, Russia would have had over $400 billion more to fund the war. And he said to answer the question of whether it is time not just to freeze the assets, as in Russian assets, and to spend some of the interest, but to spend some of the assets, there is a legal route to doing this. What do you think that legal route is and what hurdles have to be overcome? Well, that was a tantalising comment from Lord Cameron, and we are all agog to know exactly what he means, because there's been quite a lot of controversy, discussion in legal circles about whether it's legal to seize the actual underlying assets and sell them and use the proceeds. This comes at a point where we've introduced UK has, EU has, EU, US as well, a very comprehensive range of sanctions on Russia, financial, economic, energy, defence sanctions. And we're probably about the end of how far we can go on that, not much else we can sanction. So the story from now on is, first of all, enforcing them and combating circumvention, which is definitely going on. And, and we have evidence in our report of countries like the UAE and China and Turkey being used for evasion of sanctions to get high technology goods, for example, to Russia. And then the next frontier is, can we use those frozen Russian assets, financial assets in central banks and others, to sell them and to use the proceeds in Ukraine? And so we pressed the foreign secretary on that when he came and gave evidence very kindly to us just before Christmas. And he said uh, the words you've just quoted. We don't have any more details of what that legal route might be, but it suggested to me that there is active work going on in government to try to overcome the obstacles so that some of these sanctions can be used for the benefit of the people suffering in Ukraine. I mean, I'm, I'm no sanctions expert, I would, but I would imagine there are, this is an area fraught with legal difficulty. If there's joint ownership of assets, I would imagine that would be very, very difficult to untangle. But do you think it would be similarly difficult to use, as Lord Cameron suggested, the interest accrued because that's a financial sum and could in extremists be paid back if a court for example the ICJ at some point in the future said said we got it all wrong you have to pay it back easier to pay back a lump sum of money than to try and put the yacht back together or what have you I mean is interest an, a, an easier way do you think to tackle it like you I'm not a, an expert but I think that's probably right the concern about flogging the billions and billions of rubles euros in central bank accounts is that that would really not confidence in the safety of central bank deposits around the world. And many other countries have enormous reserves in central banks who might then get worried about them being seized and, and sold in extremists. So, so that's the, it's a concern about the stability of the financial system, basically. The same concern doesn't really arise on interest accruing. And if you've got tens of billions frozen, then you are storing up some interest, which is in some sort of account somewhere. And I think that would probably be easier to use, uh, less risk to the financial stability more widely. Now, how much of that is, is actually going on? How, we're, how much governments are actually looking at ways of 
getting their hands on some of these central bank deposits and actually selling them, we don't know. But yes, interest accrued, I think, would be a probably easier way to go. Do you get the feeling that, that the government really wants to close with this issue or if it's just too difficult, too murky and they'd rather make the right noises but really not, not get involved? I think everyone is conscious that getting government money for Ukraine is getting more and more difficult. I mean, the UK, we've paid our share for this coming year. Rishi Sunak announced that when he went to Kiev a couple of weeks ago. The US is still stuck in Congress. The EU is still stuck over Mr. Orban's objections, although they may be going to overcome that in the next couple of days. In those circumstances, if government money is getting harder to find, Another obvious source of financing for humanitarian work, for reconstruction work in Ukraine, would be Russian assets. So I think the government and other governments, the US and others, are seriously looking at ways of doing this and trying to mitigate the risks I was talking about to the financial system, because getting money to Ukraine is becoming more difficult. You talk about reconstruction there. Are we splitting hairs when we talk about money, let's say either sanctioned assets or the interest accrued from it. Should that those funds be used only for reconstruction? Could they be used for weapons? Are we splitting heads by, by saying, oh no, no, it's under the sort of banner of you, you can't be a little bit pregnant. Is that a way to think about this? Well, I think for sanctioned assets, you could, in principle, use them for anything you liked, I suppose. If you decided to take the risk of selling the assets, the money is then yours to apply. You'd want to apply it, I suppose, for the long-term benefit of Ukraine. You could show a court, if necessary, that you were creating assets in Ukraine, reconstruction, for example. But the overall Western commitment to Ukraine has got to cover all of the above, continuing to fund weapons, of course, strengthening their defenses, making them the spikiest possible hedgehog so that no future Russian bear, to mix my metaphors, would come and try and eat them. But also the massive amounts of money required for reconstruction. You see the level of destruction around Ukraine now. I mean, that's going to involve hundreds of billions of pounds, euros, dollars. A lot of it's going to have to come from the private sector. So one of the ways in which I think the UK and the EU can really work together for the future in Ukraine is to stamp out corruption. Because corruption is something that will absolutely uh, prevent the private sector from taking up their share of the burden in Ukraine. So not only finding some government funds, some international financial institution funds, but also helping the private sector to invest by clearing out corruption, which has been pretty endemic in Ukraine. The Ukrainians themselves say the war has shown us we've got to stamp out corruption and show that the country is ready to join NATO, to join the EU. And I think the UK can play a significant part in that. We know about capacity building, anti-corruption campaigns from the Balkans, from the East European countries when they were first liberated from the Soviet Union. So this is an area, I think, of future cooperation between UK and EU. We spoke about, we reported in the last couple of days, actually, that Transparency International has moved Ukraine up three three places in the, the corruption index, or whatever, I'm going to get the terminology wrong now, but there has been progress there, according to Transparency International. And there's a team this week, US team from the US DOD, uh, Department of State and US aid, specifically looking at whether or not the US aid is being used correctly and if there's any issues with corruption there. They've not found any on any of their previous visits, the last one in November last year. It would be interesting to see if there, if there is any evidence this time. But just generally, do you think Ukraine is, is moving in the right direction, making the right noises, both? How big a problem is, is corruption, do you think, still? 
Corruption has been an enormous problem in Ukraine. Ukraine was had a very bad reputation for corruption in previous decades. I think they're absolutely determined to stamp it out. We have evidence in our report from a previous finance minister of Ukraine, a lady who was very passionate, spoke very strongly about the importance of showing the world that Ukraine has learned its lesson and moved on from that. And I think in the context of a war, when many, many young people are dying on the front lines, many civilians are being killed in their homes, the idea that some people might be skimming off money, making fortunes out of the war, is going to be amazingly unpopular. So I think the pressure from public opinion to show that people are not benefiting from the war, which is costing so many Ukrainian lives, will be very, very strong. And I think the risks to anyone who is trying to take corrupt gains from the war is going to be very great. So I hope all those pressures together with what I was saying, the, the international pressure, if you're going to get serious amounts of international money from the US, from the EU, from private donors, you're going to have to convince us all that it's going to be spent properly and not creamed off by oligarchs. I think they know that. And just finally on sanctions, the committee's exasperation in the delay over the sale of the Chelsea Football Club comes through very clearly in the report. You describe the failure of the British government to utilise Chelsea funds from sale of Chelsea as incomprehensible. What do you think is going on there? Why is it taking so long? And what's the position now of the former owner, Roman Abramovich, or current owner? In House of Lords parlance, incomprehensible is quite a strong word. And it was agreed by all members of my committee, including our Conservative members. So it's a cross-party sense of bafflement, really. What on earth is going on, as you say? This was a deal struck between Roman Abramovich and the government in March 22, when Abramovich was sanctioned and decided to sell Chelsea Football Club, which is worth quite a lot of money. And the money was put into some sort of escrow account. And since then, there's been argument about exactly how it should be spent. We don't know the full details, but the minister at the Foreign Office, Leo Doherty, who came and gave evidence, said there's essentially a disagreement between the parties on where and how the money should be spent. In other words, I think Abramovich and his crowd want some of the money to be spent in Russian-occupied parts of Ukraine, in addition to those in part of free Ukraine, if we can call it that. And the British government, we think quite rightly, is saying, no, it has to be used for humanitarian relief in the parts of Ukraine that the Ukrainian government runs. That seems to be the disagreement. Frankly, it's very disappointing that the government didn't get that clear in the initial um, MOU with Abramovich, which they signed, to avoid these two years of legal difficulties. David Cameron came and gave evidence and was very clear. He wanted to get this sorted, and he was clear the money had to be spent only in Ukraine-run Ukraine, um, which we agree with, but we just want to see this dealt with because there's an awful lot of people who need the money in Ukraine right now, and you know, it shouldn't be stuck for two years. I, I hadn't realised that... So Abramovich was, is, in, is saying that it should be spent in the occupied areas of Ukraine. That seems to be the case. I mean, I can't think what other disagreement there would be between the parties about where the money should be spent. I think the document stipulates it should be spent for relief of victims of the Ukraine war or something rather vague like that. I think he's interpreting that to mean, well, it could be in the Donbass, in Crimea, not just in the liberated or the free parts of Ukraine. Now, we don't know that for sure, but that's pretty clearly what uh, Mr. Doherty was implying. And it was a, it's a rather important piece of fudge that was left in the original document. Mm, right, one to keep an eye on. So, we, well, we've asked for more details of now what is going to happen, what, what the action is. I think our report might just add a little bit of additional pressure on the government to get this sorted out. I hope so. 
I said that was the last question about sanctions, but just that just raises a question. What happens if there's well, I mean, there will be an election almost certainly this year it has to be by January the 17th, I think next year, but almost certainly it's going to be later in 2024. If there's a change of government, would the momentum be lost in the foreign office? I don't think there would be any change on Ukraine policy if a Labour government came in. I haven't heard anything to suggest that they want to change that at all. They've also been paying visits to Kiev. They've also established relationships with the Zelensky government. So I don't anticipate any change. So no, I don't see why there should be any loss of momentum. I mean, each year, whichever government is in power in in Westminster is going to have to grapple with finding the pretty large sums required for Ukraine against all the other spending requirements. I don't think there's going to be any change because of a change of government. Now, on the, those sums that they need to find, as you, as you say, and looking at the longer term support for Ukraine, the government of Estonia put out a very interesting document just before Christmas when they, they crunch the numbers and they say and they have committed to spending 0.25 percent of GDP on support for Ukraine. They've committed over four years, quarter of a percent of GDP over four years for Ukraine. They say that if NATO did that, that would raise 120 billion euro a year and allow, importantly, allow Ukraine to plan to put long-term contracts in place, build new infrastructure if need be, but put those contracts in place for weapon supplies overseas in the long term. And they also say that if there's a change of direction from the US post-election and the US do not contribute anymore, then the remaining NATO members, if they agree to a quarter of a percent, that's still 60 billion euro a year, a huge sum of money. What do you think of that plan from Estonia? Do you think it's a, it's a helpful addition to this discussion? Well, the Estonians are very smart people, and I think that makes a great deal of sense, yes. Because if you're planning not only year-by-year survival, but also thinking ahead to the reconstruction of, of Ukraine, you need some certainty. Now, and that's the problem. I mean, the UK government has announced money for this year, And of course, given our election, it's probably hard to make commitments going beyond this year. The EU are still stuck getting money agreed for this year. I hope that they can find a way of doing that. And I suspect if they are, if they find a vehicle for doing it, leaving Orban to one side, probably he will come on board because it's pretty bad to lose your leverage and find that the EU has gone ahead despite your objections and found a way of doing it outside EU structures. The US, I mean, they're struggling to get one year's worth of money agreed by Congress. And given all the uncertainties of what will happen in November and how a future president and Congress might look at it, again, it would be very hard, I think, to think about four-year plans. So the, the idea is great. Budgeting over four years in the current economic climate in all our countries is difficult. But I would certainly like to see the UK commit multi-year money to Ukraine. Yes, absolutely. And set an example for others in Europe as well. Perhaps when we have a new European Commission, a new European Parliament, then we can come back to that with the Europeans. Ursula von der Leyen herself was very forward-leaning on multi-year commitments for Ukraine. But I think that's got snared up as well in the pre-electoral politics of of Europe as well. And does the figure of a quarter of one percentage point of GDP. Is that the kind of figure that is reasonable? You you could expect politicians to have a view on that. It's not so outlandish. They can just dismiss the plan as unworkable and and unrealistic. Do you think that's the right sort of figure to aim at? It seems to me that's the kind of amount of money we need to be producing, yes. And it's roughly what the EU and US has been producing up to now, more or less. The problem is it comes at the same time as there's a lot of pressure to increase defence spending. 
and we've heard a lot of calls in this country to push defence spending to 2.5% of GDP. You know, this is adding up to a lot of GDP. That's the trouble when there's everything else to fix from, from health and social welfare and the rest. So, but in terms of is that roughly the right ballpark? Yes, I think it is. And it would be much better if there could be multi-year commitments. I don't see them for the moment. Now, in the report, you say the UK, the EU and its member states should ensure that they are prepared for a scenario in which they may need to take on a greater share of the burden of external military aid to Ukraine. I think you're drawing on your all of your decades of diplomatic experience when discussing a potential change of US policy. There's a, a large orange elephant in the room here. Do you detect any appetite from the British government for such a leadership role that that would take if the US took a different view? And do you think there's a willingness from the UK to shoulder more of the burden? Well, I think it's a very good question. Yes, it is a bit diplomatic, but not very. I mean, it's a pretty clear hint that the EU and the UK ought to be thinking together now <clears throat> about what we would all collectively do if Trump arrived in the White House and declared he was going to pull the plug on support for Ukraine and passively also step back from NATO, go back to the kind of anti-European rhetoric that we heard in his first term. What do we do at that point? I hope that the British government <clears throat> quietly is beginning to think about that. I hope also with European Union countries. They didn't actually say that they were doing that. I suppose that's inevitable given the politics. But we want to begin to get into the kind of public discussion, the idea that contingency planning now with our European colleagues who have the same outlook on the world would very much be in the same position if Trump arrived in the White House. That will be worth doing. The European Union is very fond of talking about strategic autonomy i.e. we should be able to stand on our own feet, uh, make our own decisions about policy with China or uh, technology or whatever. And strategic autonomy will take on a sharper relevance if Trump, in a future U.S. administration, is increasing the dividing lines between the U.S. and Europe. And in that debate, the U.K. needs to have a place, have a voice, be talking to our EU counterparts. So I can't confirm to you that it's going on, but that was the purpose of putting this on the table. It's just being honest. We can't replace the Americans in what they've done for Ukraine, either in the financial contribution or especially in the military. But if they pulled back, the European Union and the Brits would have to do everything we could. The report talks about interim security guarantees for Ukraine. What form do you think they should take? Sure, obviously, Article 5 is the, is the biggie here. But what form do you think interim security guarantees should take? Yeah, Article 5 of NATO is the gold standard because that is the collective security guarantee and it comes with the NATO military infrastructure as the command structure, the planning structure. There is something real standing behind the words on the page. The UK has already agreed a security partnership with Ukraine, which is a kind of interim measure. It's not a full, we will come to your defence if you're attacked again uh, commitment. It's a, we will arm you and support you and work with you to make you as strong as we can kind of commitment. So it's not a substitute for joining NATO. It couldn't be. But I think that's the sort of way that other countries should go, US in particular, other European countries. They should be giving commitments to Ukraine that we will stand with you and work with you to get you into NATO, which then in a way supplants that and gives them the full treaty back guarantee and the US military umbrella that comes with it. Looking at the wider world, if I may, there's a lot going on at the moment. I shudder to open the inbox each day for fear of some other hotspot exploding. China, Gaza, the Red Sea, Syria, climate and demographic change, AI. 
How do you assess the capability and posture of the UK's security apparatus as a whole? Can I just uh, make one comment about dealing with the EU on that, which we thought about? As I mentioned at the beginning, we've had a good ad hoc cooperation with the EU on this uh, intensive crisis of Ukraine. We would like to see that entrenched in more regular working arrangements with the EU across exactly the kind of range of issues that you're talking about. The longer term, deep seated threats and risks that the UK and European countries face together as we're similar sized countries in the same part of the world. So we would like to see that. And as part of that, of course, UK could be a major contributor because here we have the National Security Council. I think we're quite well joined up as a government in thinking about this range of threats. They're all national security threats now, whether they are hard power threats, military attack, terrorism, cyber attack, or the soft power, the more economic threats, technology threats, climate change, energy shortages, and all those things. They all need to be seen together. And I think the UK is quite well tooled up to do that. And I would like to see a a regular systematic discussion with the EU and European countries about that whole range of issues, because in the end, the UK alone can't do much. It can convene meetings, it can advocate, but it it can't set norms and rules. There you have to be working with a much bigger group of like-minded countries. That's the value of talking to the EU and also to the US about all these things. I I think you've been cribbing my notes here because my next question is, <laughs> oh, sorry. is the UK now a soft power nation? We have great convening power, but do you think Britain is no longer able to directly influence world events? Well, we're more than a soft power nation, honestly. We have taken a leading role in defence support for Ukraine, certainly the leading European country. We were fast off the out of the marks on that. Uh, we've sustained it. We've given them weapons. We've given them support, a lot of training. The British armed forces are very well respected uh, in Europe and around the world. If you go to the north of Europe, to the uh, Scandinavian Baltic countries, uh, we have a cooperation there going on called the JEF, the Joint Expeditionary Force, which is the UK as the mothership where the smaller militaries can dock in to a pretty intense cooperation. And they think that's absolutely great. So if you go to Helsinki or Stockholm or Estonia, you will have very warm words about the UK's hard power role in the north of Europe, traditional hunting ground for us in NATO. So we are both. uh, We shouldn't underestimate our hard power. We shouldn't overestimate it either. I mean, we couldn't fight a high-intensity war on our own these days, nor would we expect to. And we should, uh, we are focusing more back on Europe again, Indo-Pacific, the attractions of Indo-Pacific diplomacy and sending the aircraft carrier and so on. I can understand those attractions, but the hard core of UK national security is in Europe. All that said, we are good as a nation at diplomacy. I say that as a 40-year diplomat, so you have to aim off a bit, at understanding other countries, convening them, coming up with ideas, helping to craft um, agreements and compromises with other countries, holding international conferences in the UK. We're due to hold one so-called European political community here the first half of this year, 44 European countries. That sort of thing the UK is very good at. And we have, of course, the city of London. We have our high-tech sector. Uh, we have our respected journalism. We have our universities. So there are soft power assets, and there are hard power. we are a hard power contributor, player, and we work best of all when we're doing that with our friends and allies around the world. We are a very good team player, I think, open, Generally, I think Brexit was a bit of a diversion from that, created a lot of friction and led to a retreat from the world for a few years while we grappled with our own domestic political demons. 
Now we are back in the world again. I'm delighted to see Lord Cameron constantly traveling. He's in the Middle East now for the fourth time, I think, since he was appointed a few months ago. This is good. Active, creative diplomacy is all part of what Britain can bring to bear in these various crises. And I note last week, I think, General Sir Patrick Sanders, Chief of the General Staff, Head of the British Army, he, was, he gave a speech where he talked about he was broadening out the, the definition, if you like, of national security and saying that we need to be, well, he didn't say it directly, but a bit more sort of Baltic, Scandinavian, this view of, that society has a much greater role to play in national security. Do you think that those ideas land well in Britain? We don't have conscription for the army and there's not such a, an easy docking between civil society and the harder edge of security. Do you think we understand what, what this means and, and General Sanders' comments were helpful? Well, <clears throat> two, two things. I think they were helpful. I think it's right that you, he should be drawing attention to the increased risks in the world. And no, I don't think the country is at all in tune with that idea. I think if you walk around the streets of any of our towns, you don't feel like um, we are uh, in a continent that uh, part of the continent is at war uh, or any sense that war might come anywhere nearer to us. Um, I think there's an enormous disconnect between the world of uh, national security and the armed forces and the threats and risks that they can see and the ordinary citizen, partly because our politicians prefer not to talk up those things. And General Patrick's warning, I think, was timely. I don't think politicians would have said it like that. And I think partly what he's getting at is that the willingness to volunteer for the armed services or think about some sort of civilian reserve depends quite a lot on the threat you perceive. If you think there's a real threat across your border, as you do in Finland, then, you know, all adults will have some sort of at least basic military training and be in a sort of citizen reserve. And that's the kind of thing that General Patrick's got in mind. I don't think he imagines it's something immediate, but I know he's worried about the size of the army which is dipping down under 70,000 now, the difficulty of recruiting. And I think he, he wants to get a public discussion going. I think he's only got a few more months in the job. So there's a bit of consciousness raising going on here. No doubt also an implied bid for more resources, which many of us have sympathy with. But I think the fact he said it and the reaction to it shows you that most people in this country are light years away from thinking that there could be any possible existential risk to the country and therefore very little interest in the kind of citizen reserve he was talking about but it's important to get that conversation going mm-hmm. yeah i noticed number 10 shut it down very quickly i think in an election year no politician really wants to hear that talk but that doesn't mean to say the general was wrong to say it no. we get a lot of messages <clears throat> at ukraine the latest from people around the world there's a lot going on as we've discussed many people feel scared frustrated, angry, very anxious for the future and for their children. It is a worrying time at the moment. What message would you have for those people who do feel nervous about the future? It is a worrying time, and our television screens are full of the most awful images from Ukraine, but also from the Middle East and Gaza. And a sense as the Middle East crisis spreads, now with attacks from the Houthis on shipping and the deaths of American servicemen in that ungoverned space between Jordan, Syria and Iraq, everyone, I think, is rightly worried that the world seems to be heading towards disorder rather than the kind of order that we have largely felt for the last 50 years. What can I do, I think a lot of people feel? How can I react to that? How can I have any influence? 
I mean, the answer, I think, is that in this part of Europe, thank goodness, we have NATO. We are resilient. We're robust. We have the American military guarantee. Putin understands, I think, the danger uh, of putting a foot across any NATO frontier, and that deterrence has held well. But we urgently need to de-escalate this multiplying series of crises. You know, a cessation of hostilities in Gaza would be extremely useful, given the need to cool tensions there. I don't think we're anywhere near a ceasefire in Ukraine, but it will come in the end. All wars do end, finally, and we should be thinking about how that's going to happen and how we preserve European security. So I don't think people should feel panicked or frightened, but it's quite right that we should be thinking more seriously now that our way of life is more threatened than it has been really since the end of the Cold War, and that requires governments probably to spend differently to make sure we have the resilience to face up to whatever comes. Do you wish you were just starting your 40-year diplomatic career, or are you glad you're looking over your shoulder at it? I think having had 40 years was enough for me, but I would say to any young person thinking about an international role like joining a foreign service, go for it, because the world needs diplomats, the world needs international correspondents on newspapers, it needs people who understand other countries, who commit to helping develop other countries, I never regretted one hour of my 40 years as a diplomat, so I would always recommend it to others, although I don't think I'd want to start again. Lord Ricketts, thank you so much for talking to Ukraine The Latest. Thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Rachel Porter, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.